Welcome to the Successful Life Podcast, your go-to source for insights and strategies in the HVAC, plumbing, and roofing industries. I'm Corey Barrier, here to guide you through transformative approaches to business and mindset. Each episode will explore unique methods, focusing on identifying and addressing the core challenges in your field. Our goal is to equip you and your team with practical solutions that foster growth and success. So whether you're tuning in for the first time or you're a longtime listener, get ready to dive into a wealth of knowledge and expertise. Let's begin our journey to success together. This is the successful life. It's Corey Barrier. Yeah, come learn with me. Take you down the path of our journeys. This is the successful life. It's time to take what you learn. Apply it to your life. It's your turn. To live a successful life. You are tuning in to the Successful Life Podcast. Three, Successful Life Podcast is a space where you can hear stories from badass entrepreneurs and influencers that collectively have millions of listeners and followers. You get to hear their backstories and where they are currently. We discuss how precious your life is and crucial it is to live with a purpose and die knowing the person looking in the mirror today. This is the successful life. Corey Barrier, yeah, come learn with me. Take you down the path of our journeys. This is the successful life. It's time to take what you learn, apply it to your life. It's your turn to live a successful life. You are tuning in to the Successful Life Podcast. Welcome to the Successful Life Podcast. I am your host, Corey Barrier, and I'm here with my friend Rob Mack. What's up, Rob? Are you frozen? I think you're frozen. There you go. Okay. Did you hear the intro? It's okay. I know it froze there. So sorry. That's all right. So uh, I just I just said welcome to the uh, successful life podcast. Thanks for having me, brother. I'm so excited to be here, man. Me too. So we were just talking. uh, First of all, I usually tell you guys, you know, Rob is just to, to, to to dumb it down, public figure, and I'll let him tell you you know, the laundry list of, of amazing stuff that he's done. And I feel so incredibly blessed to have you on the show. Um, we have a mutual friend, Dr. Aaron, and, and um, you know, you've done a lot of work with, with, with Aaron. And so I can only fathom this conversation is going to go uh, very similar than it, that it would if, I, if she were on the phone. Or on yeah, the I'm so, uh, dude, so grateful. First of all, just to be in the conversation with you, brother. I mean that, man, like, you know, just the second that I connected with you, just felt like I get something called soul shivers when you just feel a connection and you don't even necessarily have to be talking about anything all that meaningful at the time. You just feel it. You know, there's something that clicks. So I felt that with you. Of course, I felt that with Erin when I met her almost 20 years ago, man. And uh, just an incredible woman. I appreciate her so much. Such a great friend. And uh, I'm just excited to continue the conversation with you, man. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, Rob, what, how do you, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, they know who you are, would, would, would ask the question, you know, how do you get into some of the roles that you've been in? I mean, you've done some really cool shit and you've been on a lot of cool shows and like, yeah. I think a lot of people, this may be their dream. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great question, man. I wish I had a good answer for you. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, truth be told, I've, um, you know, I worked real hard as a kid, you know, and, uh, and everything mostly because I was scared of my dad, you know, he's a disciplinarian and I love that. I love him for that because uh, he kept me sort of on the straight and narrow. Um, but, you know, I mostly did things in the beginning for that reason. And then later, 
you know, when I realized that like working real hard and achieving and accomplishing things didn't make me happy, like in a real lasting and meaningful and abiding way that maybe I should, you know, pivot and focus more on happiness. So I did that uh, mostly because I was suicidal, man. I was seriously depressed, man, for like over uh, 15 years at least, you know, and uh, to the point where I got suicidal. I mean, I was like researching ways to kill myself. And, uh, you know, I had, uh, had a moment when I just decided to do it. I went to the kitchen, man. You can't probably see in the screen there, but uh, I got some test marks there because I grabbed a knife and I dug it in my wrist. And, you know, I was, as much as you want to kill yourself, no matter how bad life gets, part of the reason you want to kill yourself is to escape the pain. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I didn't want to experience any more physical pain. So I dug the knife in to see how painful it was going to be. And something strange happened at that moment. I mean, my mind got real quiet. And I suddenly experienced this peace that I had never felt before and a sense of well-being and even bliss at the moment. And so despite nothing in my external circumstances changing, like on the inside, subjectively, I felt so much better. So I was like, oh, I could put off the suicide thing for like an hour. <laughs> it wasn't all that ambitious, man. I was like, uh, an hour is going to feel like a long time, but I'll do a little research and I'll see if I can find some answers from people who are much smarter than me, you know, so... I just read everything I could get my hands on. And before long, I just kind of dug myself out of that hole. Well, so, you know, what I find interesting about you saying that, you know, you found bliss when you, at, at the most, that, that was not what I was expecting you to say. Yeah. Um, but I wonder after you said that, if that's why people continue to cut. Yes. Not that you did. It doesn't sound like you did, but, but I'm guessing that must be, there must be some connection. Yes, there, there, I, I, I love you saying that, and I'm not sure. I think there's a great opportunity to do a lot of research, more research in that space, and specifically the way you spoke about just now. You know, oftentimes when people cut, they're trying to give a physical expression to something they're feeling emotionally and psychological that they can't put words to always, right? And so it is interesting. There is relief in that for folks, that the cutting actually offers some relief. And I would argue, like you, that part of it is that when we're in extreme pain, or when we're observing extraordinary beauty, right? That there's a quietness and a stillness and a silence that happens that is full of peace and full of love and full of bliss and happiness. And I just love you saying that, man. That's deep, man. That's, that's very insightful of you. And uh, yeah, I feel that way myself. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, yeah, because that was the last thing I thought, thought you'd say, one. And two, you know, you hear about... so you know, you hear about people cutting and, and, and I've had some not personally firsthand experience, but, but I have been through, you know, drugs, alcohol. I've been sober over 10, almost 11 years now. Congrats, um, awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So, so needless to say, I've been in a couple of, uh, uh, hospital, uh, a couple of rehabs where you go and dry out. And on the other side of that rehab is people that, you know, try to cut themselves or whatever. Yeah. So I've seen people with, I mean, marks that like I don't know how they'll ever cover those marks up and I'm just glad that that wasn't the case for you because I can imagine that's a hard life to live oh my goodness totally well what's interesting is see again the shivers man it's like it's like 80 degrees out here in LA but it's shivering because I get that soul connection like you know I worked in that space for a while man in the addiction space you know as a spiritual counselor and as a positive psychology practitioner. And it, it was hard work because I felt their pain so deeply. And, but over time, I came to a realization, but you just crystallized this realization, was that 
before, when I was experiencing depression and suicidal ideation, I wasn't cutting, but I was definitely doing self-harm, but it was like a socially acceptable form of social, you know, of self-harm, which was like, I would work out. I wanted to be a professional basketball player. So I would practice until my hands bled. If my hands didn't bleed, I didn't feel like I was really earning or deserving my time outside practicing. And I hated myself so much that I would do these things that I called working out and fitness and training. But really, when I think about it now, man, a lot of it was, it came from a place of self-hate and self-loathing and guilt and anxiety and stress and uh, even suicidal ideation, depression. So I love you saying that, man, uh, just because the insight, that connection there is real. And I had never, it had never crystallized for me until just now, man. So that's saying something right there. That is fantastic. So I'm, I love, love, love when that happens here, uh, regardless if it's me or you or whoever it is, that makes everything that I'm doing with this podcast worth it when I can, when something like this happens and it happens almost every call. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so, um, okay. So let's, let's just go ahead and start. Let's go back to like the beginning. Yeah. You didn't, you didn't make the NBA team clearly. Yeah. So, so exactly. So I, only thing I really wanted to do, man, was be a professional basketball player. So watch like Michael Jordan and Tim Hardaway and Kevin Johnson, all these guys, man, I would watch all their games and I would, uh, record them like on the, you know, VHS, <laughs> VCR and a uh, player. And, uh, then I would rewind and I'd play them over and over again. So that's why I matched each of their moves and that would practice all day every day that's all I did so in any case the whole time I was depressed I was very the only thing that I had any real love around was basketball my senior year of high school I get pneumonia walking pneumonia for like nine months man I was so uh sick I couldn't play at all I'd, I'd play for 10-15 minutes of the game and they pull me out and I had to go throw up in the locker room for 30 minutes so I you know any of the offers that I had were you know withdrawn really and so I went on to college and I didn't play basketball. I played a little at division three level, but you know, I, my depression just grew, man. And I graduated college, got a consulting uh, job. Didn't even know what consulting was. <laughs> They'd come on <laughs> campus and interviewed and they just, you know, I guess they were just looking for folks that had done okay in school and I did pretty well. So in any case, I eventually got to a place, like I said, where I was suicidal and sort of had this moment. And then once I had that moment, man, and I had postponed the suicide for like an hour, it bled into like several hours and like several days and then several weeks and then decades later. Now the whole time I wasn't good. It wasn't like I suddenly was good. I was, it was like two steps forward, like 14 steps back, man. And the suicidal ideation just continued. I wanted to kill myself multiple times every day, but I noticed that little by little I was getting better or feeling better because I was being real disciplined about the ways in which I thought. And even if I had to think about something that wasn't real or something that was a fantasy, I would just choose that over thinking about the thing that I couldn't control or that I didn't like or that I didn't love. And before long, my brain literally rewired itself for a much happier, more peaceful, more loving existence. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that there was like this, this whole field of neuroplasticity around that that would allow your brain to rewire itself to make happiness easy. But that's precisely what happened. Uh, so yeah, so in the meantime, once I discovered that, I was tracking actually all the things that made me happy, you know, like because I'm a student by nature, so I just tracked it all. And then that later became a book, dude. Like, I never set out to write a book. I set out to track what was making me happy, and I kept it to myself. And then people would say, hey, Rob, you seem a little different, and you sort of do like talking about happiness, and you should write a book or something. And I'm, I was like, well, I've got this little, you know, like journal. And then one day I just thought, maybe I should publish that. 
you know? And so then that was the sort of the first step in me opening my private practice and then all these other things. Very cool. So a couple of things, one thing I wanted to ask you. So when, ironically, I, I wasn't a senior year. I think I was in, I think I was in my 10th or 11th grade year. I had walked into one year. So it's weird because like you really don't know at, at some point, you know, you've got it, but, but you'd literally walk around with it because I mean, I assume that's why it's called walking on you. Cause you don't realize you just think you're a little sick, but not yeah. too bad. Anyway, do you think that because you didn't get to play basketball uh, for, for that senior year, because that was what you had worked uh, yeah. voracious, 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 yeah. voracious, one of those words yeah. uh, towards, do you think that it heightened your depression? Yes, um, because all of my hopes and dreams and happiness was invested in this one basket. All my eggs were in this one basket, which was being a professional basketball player. And it was really the only hope and dream I had. I thought back deep in the recesses of my mind and in my heart that I that if I could become a professional basketball player, everything would get better. <laughs> like, like I'd be okay. Like I, you know, I'd finally have all the girls that I wanted. I'd finally, you know, be uh, liked by all the uh, people that were in the world. And I would suddenly have all the money I needed to buy me the happiness that I wanted. I, I didn't realize I wasn't thinking of it that logically, but yes, that was it. And so when that wasn't working out or didn't work out, it all came crashing down really. That's so, uh, I think that's, is super interesting. And, and, and then the, the second thing that you said was you mentioned fantasy that you would, you could think you would think about something whether it was a fantasy or real, but the reality is, you know, you've kind of fulfilled without shooting a physical basketball, you still fulfilled what you thought you wanted mm, and even, and, and you're happy. Court, you crushed it, man. You crushed it, bro. Dimes, <laughs> bro. Yes, that's and it's funny that you say that because I look back now, and I wouldn't have changed a single thing ever. Like it was perfect. It was a perfect woven like tapestry that I could never have seen as I was creating or as it was being created through me. But now, as I look back, you couldn't have scripted it better because you're right. I feel that I able to offer something that's greater and deeper and more powerful and profound and more helpful and supportive through the work that I do now than I could have ever done through basketball. And had I not experienced that failure and the depression, the dysphoria, the suicidal ideation, all of that stuff, I would really not be able to live out the purpose that I have now and help the people that I can help now. So I'm so deeply grateful for that, 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 that God, infinite intelligence was so much smarter than me. Absolutely. That's that's awesome. So you keep saying suicidal ideation, right? Can you tell, yeah, tell me what that yeah. is. It's mostly just wishing you were dead. It's okay. thinking about killing yourself and thinking about committing suicide and thinking about how much better everything would be if you were just either not born or dead. So, yeah. So, okay. So how how many people do you think general population go through that thought process and, 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 and then obviously the ones that follow through with it, you know, they didn't see why they should be here opposed to just the reasons why they shouldn't. Yeah. So, uh, so a large percentage, you know, part of the challenge is that 
you know, a lot of it is underreported, right? Or unreported, right? Yeah. So we don't know how many people actually are experiencing depression or suicidal ideation who don't show up in a doctor's office or psychiatrist's office or psychologist's office or even a coach's office. Um, so it's underreported and unreported. I just say that most people over the course of their life experience at least one or two major bouts of depression, right? Over 80% at least. And, um, you know, because life can be hard and challenging and it's full of adversity. And, you know, we do know that this has gotten worse since the 1950s, Corey. Like in 19, you know, since 1950, we have uh, 10 times the amount of anxiety and stress and 10 times the depression, bipolar depression that we had then. Despite life for the most part, Right now, notwithstanding with the quarantine and the virus and the economic fallout, but notwithstanding that, prior to all that, we had a better um, experience of life in terms of quality of life than we have ever had in the history of humankind, right? We had more people doing well and uh, we had more people that were, you know, eating and had clean water, but, you know, things were getting better and things are continuing to get better. But subjectively, people have been feeling worse for it all, you know, despite things getting better, better. we call that the progress paradox, but... You, you know, it's, uh, so, so all that to be said, being said, in 1950, I find this interesting, like the average age for the first bout of depression was like 30 years old. It was like 29 and a half years old. Okay. In 1950. Now, and this was even 10 years ago, so it might be worse now, but around 2000 or so, the average age for the first bout of depression is 13 and a half years old. I right. would argue that it was that it would be younger than that at this point. Yeah, I, I, I no question, no question. I mean, even me, and you know, I was born quite a few years ago, but uh, it, you know, I remember being six or seven and being depressed, man. Like I was seriously depressed at six and seven. I remember. Um, but you're right about that, man. So yeah, we've got more folks experiencing this depression and suicidal ideation than we ever have before. I just can't imagine living, in, being eight or nine or 10 or, or, or even in a teen, this age, like this day in time, because there's so much shit that goes on that I'm not even personally aware of. I have a 10 year old going on 11 and like some of the shit goes on with her and her stupid little phone. Like, thank God it wasn't around when I was 10 years old. Preach oh. out on day, bro. Like that was me. I, th- I think the same thing. I'm like, wow, man. Like, you know, these kids, as much as they, they, you know, they get a lot of flack, you know, because the social media thing, because there's this idea and stigma around entitlement and all these things. But the truth is, had I had access to the social media stuff that allows you to so easily look at other people's lives, look into other people's lives, compare yourself, compete with them on top of everything else that's going on outside of that. Like it's a, it's a, I can't imagine. Like I was struggling and suicidal without social media, without the comparison, without the competition, just because I was locked in my own head. But these kids now are not only locked in their own heads, but they have everybody else's thoughts and emotions flooding them all day, every day through social media, through technology. It's just unreal. It is unreal. I, 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 you know, shit, I'm 42 years old and I still get overwhelmed with it, you know? So I can't even imagine, you know, being that age. And, and, And again, you know, I would have, crucified myself i know me i would have for sure been the person that did something really really stupid on social media yeah oh for sure i mean for sure i mean with with your addiction Corey, can you tell me a little bit about that like what happened exactly because sure so uh several things um i would say probably 16 ish 17 is really when i started drinking and and then i did cocaine again probably when I was 18. Um, 
and then the partying just kind of continued uh, for a long time. And my drinking got real. My drinking got so bad that I would go. I would wake up at you know eleven o'clock in the morning, ten thirty in the morning, and I would go straight to the bar. Yeah, every day, and I would drink until I had a buzz, and then I'd do some coke, and you know the seesaw with that. So, um, t- so to answer your question, two thousand five, I got caught with four ounces of cocaine. That was a big marker because after that, I didn't touch cocaine for obvious reasons. Um, like I just, it was either jail or, I, or, or the judge, fortunately, and I do believe this wholeheartedly, unfortunately, because I'm white, I believe he gave me a pass. Yeah. Yeah. Because I can guarantee you that if I had been any other color, it wouldn't yeah. have happened that way, unfortunately. So 2005 that happened, I went to rehab and I had to be there for six months. Um, I didn't stay sober. I just didn't do any more Coke. And, and so I, I drank up until 2009 and in 2009 is when I, 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 I said, I'm not gonna, well, I decided I, I was gonna have a thing, but put in my car. So yeah. the, the, re, the reality is the, the risk outweighed the reward for what, you know, I mean, and, and that wasn't the case normally with my drinking. And then I'll add one more thing. Uh, you know, AA really did a lot of good for me. Mm. However, in uh, July of 2018, I realized, and this is where Aaron and I, this is where we connected. This is what what I'm about to tell you is I said, I'm standing up saying I am an alcoholic every time I go to AA. Mm. What the, wait a minute. There's, there's something broken about this because now I identify with that person that walked in those doors 10 years ago and I'm not that person. Oh, I love you saying this. I, and, and here's, and, and you're right on, oh man, first, first of all, I'm just in ceaselessly, endlessly inspired man by your story and by you, like, and the way you describe it, bro, like that's just full transparency. Wow, man. And the resilience and the courage, just commendable, man. Thank you. And also, want to highlight too like you're right like 12-step programs are amazing they're the most successful programs that exist in the world for helping people through addiction in terms of their you know um sort of cure or not even cure rate but their effectiveness right right their efficiency yeah which is not that that high really right exactly <laughs> and that being said and that being said you nailed it most of the folks that i saw when i would work in that business and even now some of the clients that i have that have, you know, experienced addiction. I would argue that we all experience addiction. The really root addiction from my perspective is always an addiction to thinking. Um, and it's addiction to thinking that you are the mind um, or that you are, and that you are the body. There's a, that's essentially the, and it's interesting because that addiction to thinking you're the body is what essentially, or the mind is what drives us into a place and space of thinking that this external substance can make us feel better in a lasting, meaningful, and abiding way. And it's also that at the end of that sort of journey there that you mentioned that kind of keeps you stuck in it, right? So like, I love you saying that there at some point has to be an understanding, a realization, a recognition that I have a mind, but I'm not a mind. I have a body, but I'm not a body. I'm something that's thoughtless and wordless, that's mindless and bodiless, that's infinite in intelligence and isn't limited or circumscribed by anything or anybody. Right. And so until you come to that realization recognition, the addiction may change forms, but ultimately it's still there. Yeah. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, and surprisingly, the people that I've told this to, it, 
took me actually Aaron was the first person that I publicly talked to about it. And I don't know why I really don't have a clue why, but, but when I, and she said, she said, dude, like you're reading, like, this is exactly how I believe. And you know, this, um, I didn't. So, so after going public, like talking about it on here and then public, you know, publish, publishing the podcast, I just kind of kept talking about it. And surprisingly, I had more people that were on board with it than the, that were not. And that shocked me. Wow. Yeah. Why do you think that is? You just think people don't talk about it normally? And I do believe that. I, I, I think that, you know, and again, everybody knows I'm not bashing AA because AA played a part in my life. It absolutely did. I just kind of graduated from that stage of my life. And so um, the reason I, I don't think people talk about it is because one, they don't recognize the I am portion. I don't think people really understand what you're saying when you say I am broke or I am yes. tired or I am fat or I am whatever the fuck you want to say after that. Yeah. You know, yeah. because then you, are, you become that. You literally feed it and fuel it and you it do. grows. That's why I sometimes joking. Um, and look, I love therapy. I think therapy is fantastic. I also think it's a bridge, like most things in our lives, even books, even the best of books is a bridge ultimately to your own realization and recognition. And, um, you know, the thing about therapy is that we sometimes, I sometimes joke and I say, oh, you know, I know that we all call you guys shrinks, but sometimes you don't do anything but grow the problem, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I mean in the most loving way. And all the great psychologists I know and clinicians and therapists, you know, they, um, they do what they can to help people connect with the problem so they can solve the problem and let the problem go. But too much time, energy, and focus on problems just makes you an expert in the problem, and it just grows the problem. And at some point, you've got to shift and pivot away from that to being solution-oriented and focusing on what you are, not all these other things that you want not to be or want, not, want to recognize that you're actually not. You know? So if you say, I'm an addict every day or I'm broke every day, even if your bank account shows zero, you know, you've got to find a way to re-identify like the one thing the way and way I put it is every case of like failure and unhappiness and lack of peace is always a case of mistaken identity like every single one you, you know and I learned that the hard way because I would say that too I'm so unhappy I'm so depressed I'm such a failure and it's like dude it doesn't matter how much you may think that and believe that you're just feeding it yeah yeah it's just like you know look around right now you know this virus is it is because people are are they're focusing on the problem. Absolutely. No question about it. And it's interesting because, you know, uh, folks like you and I have obviously been in the valleys, you know, we, it's, it's, um, it, it can be easy sometimes to speak to. I think it's often very hard for people to hear and to receive. I remember being like, you know, 20, 25 years old and people just saying, you know, Rob, just don't focus on that right now, man. Think about something else. They were right. I couldn't receive it though. You know, I had to suffer a little bit more. <laughs> right. And because we know everything, right? We don't, you know, there's no way we're going to listen to somebody at that age. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm 25 years old. I knew everything. So exactly, man, you're, you're right about that. Um, but, but, and, and that being said, Wayne Dyer used to always say, one of my favorite quotes, he would always say, the law of flotation was not discovered by contemplating the sinking of things. He's like, you just can't get there from there, you know? Oh, man, that's good. Yeah, you want things to float, you gotta focus on objects and materials that float, you know? So I just um, love you saying that, Corey. It's just a profound recognition. And sometimes it sounds so simple, but the simple things are most powerful. 
Attention contractors of the Successful Life Podcast. Want to supercharge your business decisions? We've got something just for you. Head over to our website, SuccessfulLifePodcast.com, and click on the free download button to grab your copy of Warning When Hiring a Leadership Coach. Equip yourself with the insights you need to make informed decisions for your business. Don't miss out. Yeah, you're, I agree. And, you know, I, I will tell you this, too. I spoke in front of a group. Again, I don't go to AA, but another divine intervention happened, I don't know, it was about three weeks ago. And, and you'll love the story. I was at, uh, I was at yoga. And, and I don't even do yoga that much. But yeah. I, had, I, I just happened to be, it was my second time doing this particular yoga class. And I, you know, I didn't really know anybody in the class. Not that it's a social hour, because it's not. Um but this guy had said he called my name after it was over big beardy looking like, I don't know. Uh, and, and I, I really didn't have a clue who this guy was. And I'll tell you why, because four years ago to that day, I drove him to his, to his, um, to Holly Hill, which is the treatment center. What? Yeah. He couldn't get in. And so I stopped and bought him alcohol and I said, drink all of this. And this is what you're going to say when you go in, because they will not to that day. You're kidding me. I mean, how do you, that like, right. Serendipity, the coincidence, how does that unreal? Yeah. So, so he abused, evidently abused Ativan while he was in there. So his sobriety date wasn't until that Thursday. And so I got to go to the meeting and give him his chip that night. And then he asked me to come and speak to his run group, which is held at the men's group, whatever, like recovery place. And so I talked about this. And I, he said, this is not an AA meeting. And I said, great, because everybody in there goes to like 20 fucking meetings a week. Right, right. And so I said, I told him, I said, look, 95% of you probably are not going to enjoy what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, because you need to hear it. And so the, the response I got was surprisingly really good. Wow. Yeah. I didn't have one person try to shoot me down. Not one. What did you say? About the I am. Yeah, yeah. I said, I don't go to meetings anymore because I am not an alcoholic. I, oh. uh, you know, I, I just don't, I don't drink. Man, that is just so powerful, 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 man. Like, and I love that being a real life experience. You know, I used to read books. I read a book once called The Handbook of Mental Control, man. When I was really like struggling with, you know, in your own mind, your own thoughts. And you're like really trying to figure out like how this car that is your mind works. And it was just full of studies. And the one study that just, you know, showed up over and over again was this white bear study. They put a huge picture of a white bear, like imagine a movie screen. They just put it on a screen and they have people sit in the audience there in the chairs and they say, okay, just look at this white bear for a while. And they say, okay. Then they take the white bear off the screen. They say, you guys can think about anything else you want in the world. Just don't think about white bears. We don't care. And then they come back, you know, five minutes later and they ask everybody, hey, you guys do okay? Did anybody think about a white bear? And of course, all their hands go up and said, hey, no matter how hard we tried, we couldn't stop thinking about the white bear. So the point of the study was that you can't extinguish thoughts by fighting them. 
you have to focus on something altogether different. You have to distract yourself with something much more positive. So that's why even saying I'm not an addict, for instance, doesn't work that well because your mind focuses in on the addict part or the addiction part. So you got to say I am free or I am, you know, uh, limitless or I am, uh, you know, one with God or source, whatever, but something positive, uplifting and inspiring that takes your mind off of the apparent problem. So like you saying this man, what a, mm, so good. And that's so true because your brain doesn't know the difference in I am an addict or I am I'm not, uh, uh, yeah, not an addict. Yeah. It doesn't really, your brain, it's not your brain's job to figure out which one you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? It just hears addict. It right. just really hears addict. You know, yeah. so, so, and that's why I love that this I am thing is so big, man. I listened to these, uh, there's a book I read not long ago, I am, the I am discourses. But the whole point is really think about what you are, not what you're not at the right. deepest possible level. And even if it feels a little aspirational, really dive deep there and try to connect with that. I remember the beginning for me, it was just, you know, I am, um, or it was something as simple as like happiness is within me. Like that was a reach for me. I didn't think there was any happiness inside me. Man. I was convinced I just had a black heart and like an empty soul. And uh, you know, over time you can grow that, but the idea is to focus on what you are, not what you're not. Right. No, you're absolutely right. So let's shift gears for a moment and let's talk a little bit more about your, your career because I, you know, I, I read, I've read, you know, the list of things that you've done. How did you, how did you step into that from the consulting? You started to go there, I think, and then yeah. we kind of got off, which is okay. I love, you know. Yeah, great question. Yeah, so I, I did the consulting thing, loved the people I worked with, the company was great, didn't love the work at all, man, it was not right for me. I wanted to have these kinds of conversations with people my whole life, Corey, so <laughs> you're helping me live my purpose and my passion out, brother. So, um, you know, at some point in time, you gotta be real careful in life what you pray for, you know, I, I realized that too, I often don't have the wisdom to know what exactly to pray for. So I, um, but I was praying at the time and just like, and really hoping and setting intentions and visualizing that I would be able to move on from this corporate career. And uh, I never wanted to return to corporate world again. <laughs> and lo and behold, you know, I took a, a sort of internal position at the company. And then one day they said, hey, Rob, um, you know, this uh, job's gonna go away. We're gonna outsource it to India. But if you wanna go back to the consulting work that you hated, <laughs> you're more than welcome, we'd love to have you. And I remember thinking, ah, you know, no, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go look for a job at, uh, at you know, somewhere else. So it's fine. So I thought off on a job in a couple of weeks, couple of months, whatever. Didn't I? Didn't I? Didn't. <laughs> so at some point in time, though, at that time I was, you know, I had to sell both my cars. I had two nice German cars, traded them in for a scooter, and um, I was living in a studio, little studio apartment in, uh, and I moved, had moved to Florida. So I was like, screw this, I'm gonna go to Florida where it's warm. So I was living there, and then, you know, over time though, I was walking around most of my days I didn't have a whole lot to do and I ran into this guy on Lincoln Road and he said hey you know have you ever modeled I, I thought he was kind of messing with me maybe trying to sell me something <laughs> yeah. so I was like no dude I you know look at me I'm not really a model you know type man I'm not probably going to do well in that field and he said well listen I don't know if you um you know if you want but I'll give you a card so I didn't take it very seriously about two weeks later another person approached me and said hey man have you ever considered modeling I'm like dude I am not like have you seen this mug <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm it's not me, man. So, you know, I appreciate it. I guess I'll take it as a compliment. So then finally I couldn't find any work. So I just went into one of the agencies they gave me a card for. They said, hey, yeah, we'll put you on the men's board, man. We think you'll, um, you'll work. So then I started working as a model and I started booking jobs. And I didn't book a ton, man. Like, you know, just enough to kind of stay afloat. I started promoting parties and other things. But in the meantime, I got cast in this role on, a, on the CW called South. It was called South Beach. I was living in South Beach. And I was supposed to be this like very like abusive 
model boyfriend uh, to Vanessa Williams. And uh, so, you know, I played that role out and uh, got to connect with her. And in the meantime, I was this sort of journal where I was tracking all my happiness, like tips and tricks for myself. I began just like sending it out to publishers and stuff. And uh, I had a publisher pick it up. It was New World Library. They said, hey, we're going to, you know, we'd like to do it. I was like, wow, really? This is amazing. So then that happened. And then after that, then I got a phone call one year from Microsoft. And they said, hey, we want you to be our satellite media spokesperson. We're going to have you on Today's Show and Good Morning America and all these places. And then the next year, Carnival Cruise Line did the same thing. And then I got a call years later from uh, some production folks who were starting a TV show with E, with the E Network. It was called Famously Single. Now, in the meantime, I was kind of like pitching happiness shows to like networks, but I was just doing it like both guns blazing. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just reaching out, finding people online and sending them emails. So, um, and then I had realized over time that most TV wasn't really aimed at helping people like be happy, man. <laughs> like, right. not, you know, that's always, it's like that, not a ratings, you know, uh, thing. So anyway, I um, got this phone call and they said, hey, are you interested? And I said, you know, honestly, I'm not really interested in TV, man. I just want to help people. Like, I genuinely just want to help people. And if you guys want to film or record me and other people, help people, that's cool. But I don't want to do, like, this thing where I entertain people at people's, like, misery and expense, right? Right. So she's like, no, this is uh, a good friend of mine. Her name is Pega. Uh, and so she said, no, it's a show about you're going to let you be yourself. And you have people in a house, and they're looking for dating and relationship, like, tips. And they really want to find someone that they fall in love with. So anyway that happened uh called famously single on e so i did that for two years okay so you you uh i did want to ask you you had mentioned right before you decided to walk into the modeling agency do you think you were battling with any kind of body dysmorphia yeah i mean i would say um yes yes and mine was uh mostly like i just as a person as a human being felt ugly my whole life, man, like seriously ugly, you know? And, uh, you know, I think uh, it was because I was so shy. I was voted most shy in my high school class. And I was just so insecure and anxious and stressed all the time. And then I would look around me and I'd see, you know, like women and men that were really attractive or they just, you know, they get a lot of attention and maybe they were attractive, maybe not physically, but charism charismatically, energetically. And I had never made the connection, but as I got older, I started really getting more and more behind this idea that, look, attractiveness is more about what the energy, the energy you give off. <laughs> and, and I realized that was actually true that like, you know, um, scientifically found that people are rated more attractive, um, the happier they are, right? So happy people are always rated more attractive. Uh, tra attractively. So in any case, yes, there, it was um, body dysmorphia. It was, um, and that's the sort of nature of moods, right? So when you're in a bad mood, everything looks worse, including yourself. <laughs> so true. It's so yeah. true. Yeah. That's okay. So, um, did you have any of that or not, or not so much? Were you, I, I didn't have, so I was a fat kid, um, uh, between my sixth and seventh grade years when I made the decision that what happened was, and I'll just tell you really quick. Uh, I went to a pool party at the end of my sixth grade year and climbed up on a diving board. And these three girls were asking me to jump up and down the diving board. And I thought they thought it was cute, yeah. but they wanted to see my boobs bounce up and down. I didn't catch that the first time. Second time I came back around, did it again. I'm like, I think they're actually laughing. Oh, wow. And they asked me if I had ever thought about wearing a bra. And so that was um, one of the, uh, it was by far one of the most devastating moments probably I've ever had. Embarrassment, uh, shamed. I, I, I mean, everything you really can think of 
and I couldn't get out of there. Right. So, cause I was at a party. I mean, I was at a fucking somebody's house. So like I, I got out, I mean, eventually I left, but meaning I, wow. it would be my, if, if it were my choice, I would have bounced right then. Right. So, so I lost the weight and, and so I, I have not ever gained the weight back. And, wow. and so for on purpose, like I don't, I know exactly the number. If I, if I hit that number and, and it ever goes over that number, I shut down. I don't shut down. I just shut everything off. And so I'm very aware when it comes to those things, but my wife has body dysmorphia. That's why I, that's the biggest reason I know about it. You know, she's in amazing shape. She, you know, she's beautiful, but she doesn't see it. Yeah. It's um. so, and this will speak partly to body dysmorphia, you know, we do know that most of us um, have very selective attention, very selective perceptions while you buy a yellow car and you see the same yellow car everywhere, right? And our self-concepts work that way too, as you know. So when we have a negative self-concept, we not only only receive negative information feedback about ourselves, but we actually seek it out. Okay, we intentionally seek it out. We don't always know we're doing that. Sometimes it's unconscious or we're doing it unwittingly, but we seek it out. And so that's why, and I didn't know this when I first started coaching, it can be so frustrating when you have someone that you love so much, your wife, a husband, brother, sister, daughter, a son, you try to convince this person with a very negative self-concept that they're beautiful or they're smart. They can't receive it at all, no matter how much you attest to it. And the closer you are, the less likely they are to be able to receive and it's extraordinarily frustrating and disturbing and um yeah it's just i'm sad to hear that and i think we all experience that to degrees right but some cases are much worse than others or even clinical right and that's often leads to things anorexia and body dysmorphia i mean um and bulimia and other other disorders yeah and she went through but she went through all of uh I don't know if it was all, I don't know if it was bulimia and anorexia, but I, I believe it was probably both. Um, and she, you know, she was purging and something got stuck in her throat and she almost died. Oh. Yeah. And uh, she was in a bathroom stall at work. You know, she was waiting tables young, 16 or 18, something around those, some, somewhere around that time. And a piece of broccoli got stuck in her throat. And what she realized was, First, I can't breathe. Secondly, fuck, people are going to find me like this. And so that ended that. Wow. She she stopped, you know, throwing up after that. Isn't it interesting? I mean, again, divine intervention in a very odd way. Sometimes it feels like it's poorly packaged. (laughs) So you have to unwrap it, um, the gift that's inside. But it's interesting to me because I think about that all the time. Like, there's something to be said for poorly wrapped gifts that lead us to make decisions that are healthier for us. And that being said, I think it's, there are sort of steps and levels to that, right? Because I sort of, you know, have made decisions like that in my life too. Like you have a really bad moment where you're embarrassed by something or whatever, and you make a decision from that point forward, I'm going to be thin or I'm going to be in shape or I'm going to be rich or whatever. And it helps you to a certain extent for a certain period of time, but then you've got to sort of make it deeper greater decision around that to make a healthy expression of that, right? So there's a healthy way to approach staying thin and staying healthy. And then there's an unhealthy way. And ideally you want to choose the health, sort of the healthy way. But in the beginning, 
often it's just because you've hit rock bottom in some way that you're able to finally look up and begin heading in a positive direction. But you've got to keep going because if you get just stuck with that one coping mechanism or that one tool, then you're really doing yourself a disservice. You know, you're right. And, 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 and a lot of people don't under, I, I don't know why this is because I, I look at you, you mentioned something earlier. You said you were you used to watch the, the NBA games and you would watch them because you wanted to be able to perform like them. Well, I do that with Ed Milet. You know, he's a person that I, I'm in Arte group, which is, I don't know if you know what that is, but it's a group that he's a part. He's basically, a, yeah. Okay. And so, but, but I, but so Steve Holbrook, sorry, I'm going to veer off for a slight second. Steve Holbrook is a guy that mentors, uh, that, that is, he's mentored by Ed personally. And so he said, you know, I had him on my podcast months ago and he said, you know, he said, Ed said, listen, if you want to be able to speak like me, you need to watch the videos that I put out and that's how you'll learn. And he said, that's all I needed to hear. And so that's what I did. And that's why I speak like him. Love so now that's what I do is I sit anytime I have free time. It's, it sounds like kind of crazy. I watch the same video. I love this dude. Look, there is such genius in that. There is such genius in that. I never want to forget that. And there's a book I read recently called steal like an artist. The idea really was that, you know, all the greatest artists, they watch somebody else. And that by watching that other person and practicing and using that other person for a model, they began to, developed their own training wheels. That other person became sort of training wheels for them until they eventually got their own balance. And then they would custom tailor whatever it is they learned from the other person for themselves, right? And you hear, I've heard even Michael Jordan, he said something interesting about Kobe once, uh, you know, and he said, you know, because, uh, you know, Michael Jordan doesn't particularly love a whole lot of the players these days, right? Because, you know, he's Michael Jordan, okay? So right. he said something like, you know, which, which of the players do you like the most? Blah, blah, blah. He said, well, you know, I don't know. Say, so, you know. I think I have to say Kobe Bryant. He said, well, why do you say Kobe Bryant? He said, well, because Kobe Bryant's the one who stole most of my moves, <laughs> right? So it's like, but it's true. Look at Kobe. Look at the way he used to play. You know, he played very much like Michael Jordan, but he also then made it his own. And there's something inherently, innately ourselves that will always allow us to custom tailor everything that we've modeled from somebody else or learned from somebody else. So I love you saying that about Ed Milet. And I, I, just, I just love it. I think it's a genius and something we should all remember that we don't have to start from scratch. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because I, I listen and we don't, that's just it. Yeah. Like we don't have to start from scratch. If you do, you're trying to reinvent the fucking wheel. Stop. Dude. Totally. And I've done it all, a lot myself. I'd say, Oh, you know, I should, I'm going to do this thing and I want to do it like different from everybody else. And, and that's, that's great. And Rob, you don't need to start, you know, with the letter a again, like we have a full alphabet brother, like pull from that alphabet and you can make something even 10 times as good. Absolutely. And it's and like you just like you said about Kobe, he just he took he took the moves he needed and he discarded the rest of them and brought his own stuff in. Yeah, totally. And there's something about each of us that won't allow us to perfectly replicate or duplicate anybody else. Thank God. Right. Because that would be a waste of our own lives. Yes, it so, would. You know, so it doesn't matter how hard you try to duplicate or replicate someone else. You'll hear it a little differently. You'll see it a little differently because of the way your body moves. It comes across or is expressed a little differently. And that's what is your own brand right there. So I, uh, I love you saying that, man. I want to always remember that. Yeah. Thank you. So, you know, and I listened to his thing going the other day when I, when I spoke to those people and I'm not, you know, and I do believe because I 
put that because I spent the time watching and listening to that video so many times, there were parts that I needed and it, and those parts were there because mm-hmm. I was able to tap into that video or that story or that, whatever it was. And I didn't use any of his stories, but it, but I just related a story of my own with his whenever he was telling the story. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, it's fascinating because again, and that points to something else, which is that, you know, sometimes you think you're doing something for reason A and you find out you're doing it for reason apples, <laughs> like something that's totally unexpected. Like all of a sudden you get also, you know, B, C and D out of it. And that's been my experience with life too. I like, you know, when I started really trying to turn my life around, I would start listening to Abraham Hicks and I would, you know, and then I'd listen to Eckhart Tolle and all these folks. And often the thing that I would go searching for, I'd get that, whatever that was. Maybe I wanted to learn how to be a better speaker or whatever. But then I'd always, there's always be some hidden nugget in there that I probably needed way more than, you know, the original reason I went there for. So instead of necessarily getting just a tip on speaking better, I'd get like all these other tips on how to be happier or how to just love myself. And I think, wow, isn't that fascinating, Rob, that, you know, you can get both. Uh, but that's, again, infinite intelligence playing itself out in ways that you can't ever script or plan or plot or expect. No, you can't. Like, it would be impossible, which makes the, you know, which makes infinite intelligence and this life force around us. I mean, you just, if you think about how compl- complex each one of us are and, you know, in the amount of organs and veins and and all that's run by you you know it it's mind-blowing it's mind-blowing and so you bring me back all to all of this so you know we're talking about a number of things i would say the root of it for me is like addiction like i think the original addiction is an addiction to thinking like the only thing that's ever really gotten me in trouble was my thinking and you know in the aa world and uh the rehab world we always you know the expression is um your best thinking got you here (laughs) like your best thinking landed you in a place of addiction and um so a huge point of it and purpose of it, as you know better than anyone, is surrender and letting go of control. And what is, you know, body dysmorphia and what is eating disorder? It's really a desire to control is what it really is. Mm. And same thing with my unhappiness. I wanted to control things in a way that I wasn't meant to control. And when you think about it and you step back, just like you just shared just now, Corey, which is oh, so good. Like I think about it sometimes as well that there's this earth that we're all sitting on. It's like this big rock that's like rotating in midair. It's hanging in midair. That alone, that thought, it's hanging in midair. I don't know if we ever think about this, but this rock, it's hanging on midair. It's not a perfect sphere. It's kind of oblong and it's spinning super freaking fast. It's rotating. And it's not just doing that. It's revolving as it rotates around this super hot star that is the sun, just close enough, okay, to not freeze, just far enough away to not burn up or vice versa, I should say. And it's interesting that at the same time, whatever that intelligence is that hangs it on midair and keeps the earth rotating and revolving is also beating our heart. It's breathing our lungs. It's got our brain orchestrating it all. It's unbelievable that I would then, after knowing all of that, freak out and worry about whether I'm just the right weight or whether I'm just as successful or not, or whether I'm going to pay rent this month or any of these things that ultimately you can only control that much of. And the greater part of it, you can't control at all. Why don't I lean into and have more faith in this infant intelligence that keeps the whole universe running and has done so forever? <laughs> Just, I mean, whoa, man. Like, I mean, that is, you're, you are 100% right. And 
you know, you mentioned, you know, we worry about these, these small things, but the reality is, is if, if, if we can fix our mind to fantasize is the word you used earlier, which is something that I think if some people may hear the word fantasize and they think of something entirely different, but what that really means is being able to see what the future could look like or what it probably will look like if you can see it. Yeah. Does that make uh, sense? Totally, man. Like I love, um, the Abraham X is great. They, they would always say, you know, look, are you an observer or a visionary? We want you to be in a visionary. They say, you know, an observer, an observer looks at conditions and circumstances. They look into the external conditions of their life and they let those conditions dictate and determine how they feel. And when it does that, when it dictates and determines how, how you feel, you are powerless now to make changes in that external universe in your life. But instead, if you're a visionary, if you're a visionary, you don't observe external conditions and circumstances, you determine and dictate external conditions and circumstances by the way you feel. You know that the way you feel is what is ultimately what controls your destiny. And if you can control the way you feel, you can stay in a place of faith and positivity and upliftment and happiness, then you can control or guide and influence conditions and circumstances of people in ways you otherwise could not. And so for me, the real key is like, can I be a master of my thoughts and my emotions, you know, and, uh, or do I have to be a victim, you know, of my thoughts and emotions? And, uh, you know, I feel very strongly just after lots of experience that I'd rather be a ma- you know, sort of master of those things than a victim. Without a doubt. And so many people, and I hate even saying this because it's really negative, but so many people take on that victim role and I don't even think they know it. I, 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 maybe they do. I, I, I don't know, but you know, it, it, yeah. playing the victim role is never going to be a good idea. That, no, that's right. And, 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 and you know you're a victim if you're blaming other people and circumstances and conditions for how you feel. That, 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 that in of itself, right? So like, I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt, she said, you know, nobody can make you feel inferior. And I would add, nobody can make you feel anything without your own consent. And I get it. We've all felt like we're victims. And yeah. sometimes the worst of things happen and you can't explain it. And we're not saying that it's your fault either, but to sit and be frustrated, upset, to sort of embody and entertain this victim mentality is not only, it only, not only feels bad, but also is bad for your future and it's bad for your health and it's bad for all these other things. And so, yes, you might know to control what's happening outside of you. You know, we've got this whole quarantine thing happening, all this virus stuff happening, all this economic stuff. We can't control any of that. Some of us losing our jobs and all that. But you can control what you think and feel. And you can control whether you think and therefore what you feel. You don't have to even think at all. Like part of it is, yes, if visualizing a happier, healthier, wealthier future feels good, do that. But often for me, it's not thinking at all. It's just like sitting here right now and breathing or swiffering and eating or whatever without taking any thought, any anxious thought for my future or for my past or for my life. It's like right now, what can I control? I can control whether or not my bathroom is clean. Yeah, <laughs> so enjoy and- that as much as I can. It's gonna be crystal clear, clean or whatever. Or maybe right now, just taking a nap. But at the end of the day, I promise with a little practice, we can all get better at experiencing the infinite peace, love and happiness that we are. Yeah, I agree. I totally 100% agree. And I believe that we're headed, well, I don't know about right this present time, but <laughs> I do believe that, that, that the greater good is 
starting to activate. No question. No question. Yeah. Absolutely with you. And, and absolutely, I would completely agree with that. And I would say that that greater good is always and forever. Um, you are one with that greater good, and that one, that greater good, I would call infinite intelligence. And you don't always see it reflected immediately in the forms of the world, in people's bodies and people's lives. You don't always see it there, but if you dive deep, you'll feel it inside your own self, inside your own being. So that's why when my mind is quiet, or even when if I'm just sleeping and I'm in that dreamless state, I feel perfect peace. There are moments in my day, despite everything that's going on, I feel perfect peace. Why? Because I'm not thinking about the stuff that compromise my peace. <laughs> I'm not right. looking at the news, I'm not on social media. You know, I'm having these kinds of conversations or I'm having no conversation at all but I'm not feeding the problem. Right, and you're most likely, and just correct me if I'm wrong, but most likely you're not thinking about Rob. Oh, yeah. oh without question. So I love you saying that, man. And I, <laughs> that used to drive me nuts, man. When I was like you know, 20 years old, I'd say, well, how am I gonna make money? And how am I gonna do these things if I don't think about Rob? And then later I discovered that me thinking about me was bringing me most of my stress and anxiety and worries. Um, two, I wasn't very creative in that state of thinking about me all the time. And at three, my happiest moments, my most peaceful, peaceful moments, when I wasn't thinking about me. So at night, when I go to bed, my favorite moment probably all day long is when I get in bed, I lay there and I'm so tired, I can barely move. And I literally, on purpose, forget the entire world and everything and everybody in it, including myself, most especially myself. I just I like enter this void. And in that void, I mean, there's nothing like that bliss and that peace. It is just perfect because <laughs> there's nothing to disturb it. And what a more perfect time to do it because as you well know, the subconscious mind, that's when, you know, in that theta state, that's when it, you know, which is twice a day, but you're talking about that. That's in fact, you hit a great point and we'll wrap up after this, but that is exactly what you're supposed to do before you go to bed is to not think about all this shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very critical. Especially <laughs> if you want to sleep well, you know, yes. I, like Corey, and I love that you bring up the alpha theta, brainwave state because that was the mistake by the way and I don't know about you've been doing this for a long time you know I was not I always struggle with visualization and imagine like being able to imagine things well uh, especially positive things and I realized that so much of the problem was that I had to static on the screen because I was thinking all day about myself or about the problems in the world and that was kind of blocking or obscuring the clear picture behind it that I wanted to visualize right and so when you're in that alpha theta brainwave state when you're first waking up in the morning or going to sleep at night after you've just quieted your mind that's the best time then to visualize something very positive and to do it just simply to feel good not to get the result because then that makes you way too stressed out and anxious but just doing because it it's fun like you're a kid again and oh wouldn't it be nice if i just had all this money flooding in and i could share it with the world wouldn't that be so nice and you just do that and you fall off to sleep and then you suddenly realize you make so much more progress with your visualizations or your manifestation or your demonstrations when you do it at that time in the morning and the night. I love you for saying that, Corey. Like, I, another great reminder, man. Like, really good. Well, and typically you wake up in that state if you go to bed in that state, you know? Totally. It's, a, yeah. it's, it's amazing. And the other thing I started doing when I couldn't, you know, I hadn't come quite to this realization yet. At the very least, what I was doing was at night, I would play like really um, happy, inspiring, uplifting, um, like either subliminal, uh, what's it called, binaural beats, or subliminal like programming or messaging, little videos or something like that. And I would realize that sometimes I'd wake up the next day and I'd have this thought in my mind, like "peace be still, still," or "I am that I, that I am," or you know, um, 
you know, thy grace is thy sufficiency or whatever. And I'm like, where is this coming from? Like, why are these? And I realized later, oh my gosh, I slept listening to it and it actually became like programmed into yeah. me. So I love you saying that's another great uh, tip and trick there, Corey. That's great. Every night we listen to Wayne Dyer's one of those, like five or six minutes. And then we listened, there's a, a, you know, a different, a list of people that we listen to. And then the very last part of it is, is hypnosis at the end. And I do that shit on purpose Yeah. <laughs> every night. And this is yeah. the thing. My wife woke she, I woke up night before last and she said, I woke up because, and I didn't feel like I could go back to sleep. So I put on a, one of Joe Dispenza's things that I haven't, I, I don't know if I've heard, I've heard everything he said, I believe, but you know, what he, people, different people interview him. And it's That's right. So, so, uh, and so I put that on, it was like two 30 in the morning. She was like, dude, like the next day she was like, you can't put on Joe Dispenza at 2.30 in the morning because two reasons. One, I like what the hypnosis stuff we listen to. And two, I like Joe Dispenza and that keeps me up. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. She was like, yeah, you went back out. And I, I was up listening to Joe Dispenza because I love what he says. And so it was, it, it's so interesting that we, and, and we listened to the same thing. And like, I swear to God, it's changed our life. Yeah. Yeah. I love you. Like I had to, I realized early on that if I was left to my own devices, meaning I was left to my own thoughts, I was never going to break the pattern. <laughs> like I was never going to break the pattern. So I began like you to flood myself with all of the positive, uplifting, inspiring messaging I could possibly find in the world. Like all, all the time. If I find myself online, I'd go right on my phone, not to social media. I'd look at the Kindle book or whatever, the book of quotes didn't matter anything and just repeat it until I actually began to believe it. You know, you want to think it and believe it until you feel it. Once you feel it, it's in, it's in there. Yeah. You know? So I just love you saying that. It's important for us all to remember that, especially in this day and age when we're kind of quarantined, we're locked up and we can probably only find negative news if we're not intentional. But if we're very intentional, we can listen to podcasts like this one and we can find other great information out there that uplifts, that inspires, and that helps you come out of all of this better and more blissful. Absolutely. And, and you know, this virus is going to be a gift for a lot of people. And then for a lot of people, it may not be, but if you have, if you could just look at it as a gift, you'll have gifts come out of it. So, you know, Mike drop right there, Rob. yeah. So Rob, thank you so much for coming on, dude. Can you let everybody know where to find you? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, man, I appreciate you so much, brother. I love who you are. I love what you're doing, man. Don't change anything. Like you're just killing it, man. I love it. I mean that. Thank and, uh, you so bro, much. I mean that. Yeah, for sure, bro. Um, you can find folks can find me at coachrobmack.com. That's my website. You can find me at all social media places, most likely Instagram at Rob Mac, M A C K official. And you can also find my book happiness from the inside out everywhere. Great books are sold, including Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Fantastic. Dude, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you coming on. I, it's been magnificent. Thank you. My pleasure, brother. I can't wait to see you in person, buddy. Yes, sir. If you took anything away from this podcast, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, and go check out some other episodes on SuccessfulLifePodcast.com. This is the Successful Life. Thank you for tuning into the Successful Life Podcast. We hope today's insights have ignited your passion and provided tools to shape your leadership journey. Remember, greatness is a journey, not a destination.
Continue your pursuit by exploring more resources and insights over at coreybarrier.com. Until next time, keep leading, keep learning, and keep striving for excellence. Stay inspired and see you on the next episode.